This episode of Wrestling Changed My Life is brought to you by Spartan Combat. They're hosting a national tournament May 21st through the 23rd in Jacksonville, Florida. Register now at SpartanCombat.com. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, that's good wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. This is your host, Ryan Warner. You're listening to Wrestling Change My Life. My guest today is Tim Kendall. He was the former president of Pinterest. Before that, he was the president of monetization at Facebook. He's also been featured in the very popular documentary, Social Dilemma. This guy is one of the icons of Silicon Valley, and he also wrestled at Stanford in the late 90s. You know we hit on that. We hit on a lot of business-related topics in this conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Fan of the week goes to my man, Adrian. That's at Bray Sean on the gram. Looks like he's a fan of Harry Potter back in 2017. Who isn't, though, my friend? Thanks for supporting. Greatly appreciate it. As always, folks, this episode is presented by Spartan Combat. They're our new title sponsor. We're so happy to have them on board. As we mentioned in the intro, they're hosting a national tournament May 21st through the 23rd in Jacksonville, Florida. Check it out. Tim Kendall, welcome to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. I'm excited to talk with you. You've had a, a long list of accolades, and I know you're still out in the Bay Area. I used to live out there, so we'll get into some of the business ventures, but you know, the name of this show is, is Wrestling Changed My Life, and at some point, we hit on wrestling, so with okay. you, we might as well get right on into it. Okay. Um, understand you uh, wrestled in high school and obviously did at Stanford. What was the, uh, what's the origin story? How'd you get involved? I'm sorry to do this. I'm going to cut you off because my... Can I ask you two questions and then we can get, we can. Yep. We're not live, right? No. Okay. No. Um, for some reason, my camera is, we are doing video, right? Or is it yeah. just audio? It's okay. video. For some reason, my camera is um, not, it's like super blurry. It's clear on my end. It's clear on your end? Yeah. Crystal clear. It looks great. Oh, okay. Then it's just yeah. an issue on my end. Then let's, sorry about that. We can, we can. If you want to take it from the top, we can do that. Whatever's best. We'll just, we'll just cut right into it. Um, okay. So folks know you now for, for your work at Facebook, at Pinterest, um, even interning for Guy Kawasaki. That was, that was pretty cool to find that. But 
you know, a lot of folks maybe don't know that you wrestled. Um, so how'd you get involved with the sport? So kind of two reasons my dad wrestled. Um, and so before I even kind of, you know, formally started doing it as a, as a kid, um, you know, I always used to wrestle him. Um, I also wasn't very good at, <laughs> I wasn't very good at other sports. Um, you know, my close friend of mine from college likes to joke that, you know, I have, I don't have very good fine motor skills, but I have good uh, gross motor skills. And so I think I figured that out when I was, you know, nine or 10, that, you know, maybe, you know, I probably wasn't going to be a very good basketball player or baseball player uh, or even a football player, but um, I definitely could kind of grab people and, um, throw them around a little bit, I guess, maybe better than your, than your average kid at that age. Um, and then I actually got bullied when I was in, uh, first junior high. So seventh grade. And that's actually maybe the biggest catalyst was, you know, I'm kind of sick of this. And, and, you know, maybe if I knew a little bit about this, this thing called wrestling, I might be able to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so, uh, vulnerable to these these bullies so what happened with with the bullying story was it just like a playground dude hunted you down for your lunch money it was a group it would actually was about four or five dudes um and i was actually riding to i was riding to school with my next door neighbor who was a girl who was older and and these guys were also older and they liked her and they didn't they didn't like that i was <laughs> riding my bike to school with her i guess and i you know unbeknownst to me they were interested in her she was like my sister you know we just grew up together um so they didn't like that so they just and they were pretty relentless you know it was day after day for a couple weeks um and then they and then i think you know like all of us at, at, when we're 12 years old didn't have great attention span so they eventually eventually kind of forgot about it so that was a big catalyst for you. And then when you were for in sure. high, when you were in high school, were you ever like the guy who was just all about wrestling or was it just something you did? And then in college, you could kind of hooked you a little bit more. No, I was pretty, I mean, I was really, by the time I got, I, even kind of all about wrestling for me, right. When I, right. When I took it up, I mean, you know, this, right. It's, it's hard to sort of do wrestling halfway, you know, you don't sort of like, halfway cut weight you don't really halfway do a match uh so um i was kind of all in from day one um you know work getting up early and doing a second workout you know on my own you know even if it was snowing outside i'd go for a, i'd go for a run um you know i'd get up sometimes early and just jump rope just to get the you know early morning cardio before the afternoon workout um so it was always from the beginning, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be successful. And, and I felt like, well, look, there's no, there's no reason to hold back in terms of my dedication and intensity. So I was pretty dedicated and pretty intense. And that definitely elevated, I, I'd say that, that um, increased in, in high school. Um, and I sort of, you know, in high school, I kind of did that, the dream to kind of wrestle at Stanford started to really form. And uh, yeah. And when you got to Stanford, you know, it wasn't on the level of the program that it is now, but there was a gentleman there named Todd Sermon. Yeah. And I'll never forget this name because you know, I grew up in Illinois 
and yeah. the Midlands was a huge deal. Yeah. And my dad would always have us watch it. And I, that must've been the first year I ever watched the Midlands because I'll never forget Todd Sermon won the Midlands in like 99, 2000. And then during the airing of the Midlands, they said, Oh, and we were so sad to announce that Todd, you know, a few days after the Midlands lost his life. And I never really knew what happened. And just doing some research on you, digging you up, I saw that name popping up again. So I'm genuinely interested, you know, what kind of person was he and what kind of impact did he have on the Stanford program? Oh, he was, uh, he was a force and, you know, such a, such a uh, infectious personality in, in the sense that he was just very kind, very sweet, incredibly enthusiastic, um, and just a student of the sport. I mean, he was, he, and, and this came, I think, from the, the Stanford wrestling coach at the time, Chris Horpel, you know, he's, he's certainly in the, um, at the time I was there, and, and I think in the 80s, I think many people viewed him as one of the best technicians in the world. Hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he coached at, at the Olympic level, sometimes informally, but you know, you know, he would give technical advice to Kendall Cross and, and other gold medalists because he was such a, um, such a refined technician of the sport, and he just understood the level of of mechanics and nuance in a way that really very few people in the world did. And I think Todd, Todd was very smart. He was a um, computer systems engineer, which is probably the only major at Stanford that's harder, harder than computer science. It's like a combination of computer science and electrical engineering. So he was brilliant. And I think he really, um, he really absorbed Chris Horpel's kind of technical coaching style and then really developed a style of his own, which was um, he was just an incredible scrambler mm. and, and he was incredibly flexible and so flexible, in fact, that his nickname was Gumby <laughs> because you would get you would you would get a shot on him. You know, do a fireman's care, get a single on him and you would be in so deep and think there's absolutely no way that I'm not going to be able to convert this into that this is not going to be a takedown and um and he'd get out and, and by the way he would he it wouldn't just get out to neutral he would score a takedown on you sure uh, so he was uh he was really special and um yeah tragically after after he won the midlands in in 1999 uh he was he was killed in an accident in las vegas on on new year's eve um yeah really i mean just obviously heartbreaking uh even if you don't know the guy you, you never want to see someone go that young but from what you hear just the uh just, like i think the coach at the time said you know he knew that um he was going to vegas and said you know, don't do anything crazy and you know todd's like you know that's not me so uh obviously yeah. he, he was a free spirit and yeah. i just think that's a name that you know a lot of folks from your generation definitely know folks from my generation probably not as much and i just think it was it's due to just to get something on him because uh, obviously he's yeah. a big part of your life. Yeah, now, when you left, when, when you left Stanford, did you know you were like, did you ever think you'd end up in tech or did you plan on being in private equity most of your life? Well, so I, I, I kind of thought I was going to be in tech, but, but to your point, I, I started on kind of the venture private equity side. So I was doing investing in, technology entrepreneurs who were, who were starting their own companies. Um, 
And, and I think it was through that experience, you know, right out of undergrad. And by the way, I, you know, I was doing that at the peak, right? I was doing it in 99, 2000, 2001, which is when, I mean, it was just, it was just insanity out here in terms of the number of companies that were getting started, the amount of money that was getting raised. Um, but I saw, you know, I got the chance to meet and, and, and help some really amazing entrepreneurs during that time. So um, we ended up meeting the original PayPal team when there was 10 people. We didn't, the firm that I was with did not invest, which was uh, <laughs> maybe one of the biggest mistakes of our lives. Um, but we also met the founder of Pandora and wrote Pandora, their first check in 2000. Um, so I saw that it was a colleague of mine that led that, but, but, uh, you know, I got to watch that and got to know Tim Westergren who ended up running, running Pandora for decades and creating, you know, a really important and valuable brand in, in online music. Um, but I think in watching that, I realized like I, I was being an investor in my early twenties, just felt like being, you know, sort of like being an offensive coordinator or something on the sidelines, right. You really want to be on the field and you just see these, these entrepreneurs actually in, in the trenches building. And that's, I, I sort of knew after a few years that that's what I really wanted to go, to go do. Well, I, you know, I know we don't know each other that well, but my day job, I'm an outside sales rep for uh, F5 and I got my start at yeah. Salesforce in San Francisco. Yeah. So a mentor of mine uh, was a, was a VP of sales at VMware and, He's like, hey, you should really go into sales. And so he, I moved out to California. He introduced me to Carl Eschenbach. And so I was like, kind of had some of these mentors around my life. And this is like 2015. I get to San Francisco and working at Salesforce. Everyone yeah. in your generation talks about that 99, 2000 people from Oracle are going to meetings in limos. Like everyone thought Cisco would take over the world. I mean, how crazy was it back then? It was, it was, it was annoyingly crazy. I mean, in the sense that um, there was, traffic was terrible. You could, I mean, driving from Palo Alto to San Francisco, it should take 40, 40 minutes. It took on Fridays, it could take three and a half hours. Because <laughs> um, there were just an inordinate number of people here and a lot of people, you know, my age at the time who were, want, you know, God, I got to live in the city. But, you know, all the companies, most of the companies were down in Silicon Valley. There were very few companies in San Francisco at the time. Headquartering your company in San Francisco was very uncommon, hmm. um, you know, in, in, in that time. So, you know, this notion now of like Twitter, Pinterest, Salesforce, all those companies being in the city, like very different. The, the uh, yeah, the epicenter really shifted uh, in the last 20 years. Um, but it was nuts. I mean, you felt it when you went out in the city, unfortunately, there was a lot of entitlement, a lot of people, you know, kind of pounding their chest with, you know, buying rounds of drinks and, and, uh, you know, uh, the Uber wasn't around then, right? No one had cars. So you've got, you know, you've got the scarce number of cabs. So people are fighting over cabs and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people felt pretty entitled. So it was, I think that um, it was sort of a relief when the, when the bottom came out in, in 2001, because traffic went back to normal. A lot of people left, um, you know, that entitlement went away, which was, which was nice. Um, and I think it's really, 
it's really hard. People don't really realize this. It's really hard to build a good company during peak times because in fact, if you look at when Cisco got built and really scaled, it's true of Google, it's true of Facebook. In terms of when they went from 50 to like a thousand employees, they, those you know canonical companies did that during downtimes. Mm. And what happens during downtimes is that there are fewer jobs and, 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 and fewer opportunities. And so you can really get count concentrated around a new idea or an existing idea that's going really well. In a 99, 2000 type environment, everybody thinks they can run a company. Everyone thinks they can be an entrepreneur. So you've got basically way too many people, too distributed, all raising money. Um, it's kind of just an an untenable ecosystem for building, you know, important, durable companies. And like you said, though, I mean, during, you know, after that downturn in 01, you know, then, you know, throughout the 2000s, it builds up again. But that's when you made the move over to Facebook. And I'm just curious, you know, some wrestlers say once you've wrestled, everything in life is easy. I know that's not true. I've had a lot. Of, <laughs> I've had a lot of doctors on here that go that wrestled at Michigan, and then they went to med school at Michigan. They're like, that might be ten times harder. So when you get to Facebook in like early two thousands, what's the day in the life like? What's the grind like? And and I mean, just kind of share that experience because I can't imagine the pace at which you guys were going. Yeah. So I I joined when it was. Um close to a hundred employees. Um, and, uh, you know, only a few million users, still kind of a college website. And, uh, it was intense. I, it's not as hard as wrestling I have to say. I mean, I, wrestling is still the hardest thing in terms of a, a rest, going through a wrestling se- a division one wrestling season, the weight cutting, the competition, the psychological intensity of, training and you know the psychological um intensity of losing mm-hmm. right i mean there are not that many things that are more psychologically intense than you know losing a wrestling match that you that you've been visualizing and hoping to win for weeks or months um but it was it was intense uh you know a lot of us a lot we were all in our 20s except for mark mark was um, there were a couple people who were Mark. Mark was 19. No, Zuckerberg yeah. was 19. Zuckerberg was 19. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, he turned in, in May. I think he was 19 in May of 06. He turned he turned 20. Um, so Zuckerberg is a, a kid, but brilliant and actually starting to um, really emerge as a, this product visionary and actually pretty good, pretty good leader. And um, all of us lived within, you know, he was smart. He created this incentive, this financial incentive to live within the mile of the office. So all of us lived within a mile of the office. And so you just sort of, you know, you lived and breathed it. Um, You know, so I rented this like little, it was a converted hotel room on (laughs) University Avenue uh, above where Pluto's is. I don't even know if Pluto's is still there, but around the corner from the Garden Court Hotel and uh, yeah, I mean, it was an efficiency apartment. Efficiency basically means there's no, there's no kitchen. It's basically just a hotel room. Mm-hmm. And I put a mattress on the floor and that was, that was kind of it. And, you know, we did that for, I did that for the first three, four years I was there. Um, 
Because all you did was, was live and breathe that company. And it was the growth of both the user base and, and eventually revenue, uh, which I was involved in, and the employee base was so vertical. Um, and everyone was, you know, enthusiastic, excited, et cetera. And, you know, it wasn't an up and to the right thing in, this, in the way that you think it is looking back. I mean, we had flat user growth months in, in 2007 that people you know, no one talks about. Um, wow. You know, we, we were able to raise money right before the, the financial crisis. The company was able to raise money at a $15 billion valuation. The next time it raised money, it was at a $6 billion valuation and then at a $10 billion. So, you know, no one would ever believe you if you said, you know, that Facebook had a down round. Uh, but but we did, you know, through the through the financial crisis, basically, we 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 did a down round. Um, so it was it was not up and to the right. It was a, it was bumpy, especially at the beginning. I mean, I remember the summer of 06 thinking you know, MySpace was 100 million users at the time. It was just the dominant platform relative to Facebook. And I thought, oh, maybe I made a mistake in coming here. <laughs> it's just crazy to hear. I just love hearing that even the most successful of companies, they have those vulnerable moments where there's some, maybe there's some self-doubt or, you know, reflection that maybe this wasn't the right move. And even for someone as successful as, as you and you know, in Facebook, it's just crazy to hear that that's always the case. Always the uh, case. And I've heard the same of, I've heard the same as um, at Google and all these other places. And, and on the inside, these things, even the ones that, that, you know, on the outside, you think are just choreographing the perfect, uh, you know, scale and routine and product. They're super messy on the inside. They're yeah. super dysfunctional. They're super messy. Um, it's it's stunning, right, that they're able to create and emerge into these incredibly powerful and useful products. And then ultimately, you know, multi-billion dollars in tens of billions of dollars in revenue. Well, and you were a big part of that, and we're not going to rehash everything in The Social Dilemma. Everyone is listening. You must watch this documentary, um, but I'll fill you in. So Tim was the director of monetization, which means he was brought on to help Facebook make money and you know, then went on to, to work at Pinterest uh, as the president and grew the user group, you know, grew the revenue, so on and so forth. My question is, you're obviously an athlete. You're still in shape now. What's your workout routine when you're working 100-hour weeks, and how do you it's a two part, the workout routine, and then also the mental health aspect of it. How are you staying in check, man? Well, I mean, I think that, I think this, this, I mean, there could be people doing hundred hour weeks. I, I, I don't think I've ever done a hundred hour week. Okay. Uh, it, you know, I'm just saying like, like counting the time in the office and everything, but, but let's just, let's just say, uh, you know, I definitely did my fair share of, uh, 70, 80 hour weeks. Um, and I'm not doing those. I'm not doing those today for sure. Um, you know, they're intense and, and you, you have to really manage your stress. Um, and you know, you at, at Pinterest, you know, there were, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in my organization, right. That I had, that I felt accountable to and, and felt, you know, a sense of allegiance. Well, 
you know, loyalty towards them. And I just wanted to make sure that they were all happy, going to be okay, like all that stuff. So that, that weighs on you. Um, I think it's key to, um, well, I think it's really key to set up boundaries just in terms of when you're in the office and then when you're out of the office and hopefully when you're out of the office, you're, you're disconnected to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's critical. You know, it's, it's just in the same way that you just can't train 12 hours a day and expect to be, you know, in great, expect to win, right? That's just not the optimal training regime, right? It's probably something like four hours a day or something like sure. that. And I think with intellectual pursuits or work, it's the same thing. And there's been a lot of data actually that like, you know, if you work 50 hours a week, everything over 50 is just meaningfully less productive. You get mm-hmm. diminishing returns. And I think that's very true. Uh, and then, so then it's about, well, how do you make those 50 as, as good as possible? And I think it's really about how do you recharge during your off time? Um, and can you stay present with the people who you're spending that time with your family, your kids, your friends? Um, and I worked out, uh, I tried to at least, you know, um, about halfway through Pinterest, I got a Peloton and that, that helped a lot because you, just in terms of efficiency, right? I mean, you, you, could, you could roll out of bed, you know, I could roll out of bed at 6 a.m. And, and, you know, kind of stumble to the garage in my socks and, and boxer shorts and I could just, you know, slump onto the, <laughs> the, the um, Peloton and do a, do a quick workout. And that was just, you know, you could get a complete workout in 30 minutes or less, then go take a shower and then go to the office. Um, and I do think the, the workout thing was, was pretty, was critical for, for stress management. I, you know, I got into meditation after Pinterest, but I, I, wish I, I wish I had been more of an active meditator when I was there, because certainly for all the benefits that people talk about with meditation, just, you know, clarity of thought, um, calmness, anxiety management, stress management. It, you know, it's really a powerful thing. Especially with idea creation. Um, I just did yes. a, an audio documentary on the Smith family. And, you know, you, I really kind of figured out you don't get the good organic ideas bubbling up until you haven't looked at the screen for 30, 60 minutes, maybe more. I mean, especially on a 90 minute run where you can't look at your phone. That last yep. 30 minutes is where really things start ticking, you know. Um, Very true. And knowing, you know, kind of what you're doing now with with moment or the moment. I'm not sure what what you refer to it as, but yeah, it's called it's called moment. Moment, perfect. Yeah. Um, can you just share what this is and, and why you're involved with it? Yeah. Um, well, I think that in a in a phrase, I think we've lost control over our attention our attention span. I think we've lost control over our phones mm-hmm. and the degree to which I think our phones control us, unfortunately. And, you know, what, what's going on there is that there are, you know, as, as Tristan Harris, who's, who's in the social dilemma says, you've got basically millions of computers and tens of thousands of engineers on the other side of that piece of glass figuring out, you know, how do I get Ryan's attention right now? Hmm. And it's not, uh, another guy in the film says, that's not a fair fight, <laughs> right? And, and um, so what, what has happened is that all of us are getting sucked into our phones 
and into things that honestly don't really yield benefit to us, right? It's, you know, when I, when I go on Instagram and I get sucked into surf videos or, you know, sometimes worse, at the end of 45 minutes, I don't feel, often do not feel better about myself. I often feel worse. And I really have sort of nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea behind Moment was there's so many people there who think they use their phones too much. They wish they could use it less. They do not know how to use it less. And so um, Moment helps people really kind of take back their time and, and get control back over their phone. Um, and the way we do that is we, we measure how you use your phones. We kind of give you a baseline. Um, and then we give you a whole set of tools and we keep adding to this tool set, um, that sort of nudges you and prods you and kind of coaches you to use your phone in a way where you now have agency over your phone, you're back in control. Um, and what we find, what, what our users tell us is, you know, folks that'll spend four or five hours a day on their phone are now down to two or three hours a day. They're happier, they're healthier. Uh, their relationships are better, their attention spans better. Um, but it requires work on the part of the user. You know, it's like anything, you know, you want to get in shape, you, 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 you got to go to the gym, but you got to do work at the gym. Um, and so, you know, you got to download moment and then you got to actually do, you know, do the exercises and, and stick to the guidelines that, that you, that we help you put in place. And I love how you describe it to phone use, phone usage to an addiction you know, I have some alcoholism that runs in my uh, my family, and so I know firsthand what that looks like. And like, even the folks who know they're not supposed to be drinking, they drink, they're having a blast, but then afterwards they feel guilty and they feel bad about themselves. And that forty five minute Instagram blast that you're talking about is the same way. Like, you don't feel good. It's the same thing. It's we it's, often think about addiction. Our society does this. We think about substances. We think about, you know, drugs and we think about alcohol, but actually all of us are addicted to something to some degree Um, because that is sort of that that is kind of our human tendency. Um, And and that's part of the reason that I got into this is I was just noticing my own addiction to my phone and the negative impact that it was having on me and being incredibly conscious of the, of the medium and long-term consequences, I was unable to make better choices in the short term. Mm. That's addiction. (laughs) So, um, and there, you know, I think about this more broadly too. I mean, that problem of like, how do you get people um, to behave in ways that are congruent with what they want in the medium and long-term? despite the temptations of the short term. Hmm. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a human problem, by the way. Uh, I think one of the things that's really cool about software and technology and actually artificial intelligence is I think that set up correctly, we can actually help people really make better decisions and ensure that they are reminded at the right time to make that that decision and detect when they're maybe wavering in some way through some input on on the phone. Um, You know, up until now, artificial intelligence has really on the consumer product side has really just been used to work against us. Mm -hmm. Um, But how cool would it be if 
there were a service that worked on my behalf that said, okay, this service actually, it's the service objective and you have to pay for it, of course, is we're, we want to, we want to maximize Ryan's health, happiness, and longevity. And we're going to work on his behalf and he's going to pay us a few bucks a month for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a tractable problem. It's just that no one has quite build it, built it or figured out the shape of that service. But I believe it's, it's coming. Well, like you said in the film, you know, if you're not paying for something, you are the product. So in that situation, yeah, I'd be fine to pay for that product if it, if it helps get us off these phones, because man, that hourly usage stat, it's just been going up for me lately and it's, it's troubling. Yeah. Um, and it's, you don't even realize it happens sometimes. The one thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up here is why does the brain, how do or not why, but how does the brain change when you look at long-term phone usage? I know you've mentioned it before that you're seeing some yep. brain matter changes. What, what does that look like? Yeah. So what, what the research that I've, I've read and, and uh, you know, for those who are listening, who are really interested, Tristan Harris's um, nonprofit, which is called the Center for Humane Technology, which is really focused on um, the policy and regulation around these companies and trying to get, um, you know, fr- from that standpoint, trying to affect change. Um, he has on his website, which I think is just centerforhumanetechnology.org, uh, he has all of this research that's been done on the phone. Uh, and, and, and about social media as it relates to our mental health, but also as it relates to the erosion of democracy, um, the, the, the spawning of, you know, umpteen conspiracy theories, including, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who believe the earth is flat. Um, (laughs) he's got, he's got all the research on this. And so, um, there's some specific research that's been done that shows how, social media usage corresponds with our brain and what's happening in our brain. And what they've seen, the two studies that really stand out is one shows um, that overusage corresponds with thinning of the prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, really the part of the brain that makes us human. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and then there's another study that shows overusage corresponding to the, um, breakdown of gray matter around the amygdala, which is the animal part of the brain, um, corresponding with, with, with overuse. So it is, um, it's a real thing. I mean, one of my, one of the visions that we have with moment at some point is, cause I sort of think about if we go back in time and we think about industries that have basically for profit have made the planet worse or made us worse off. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go all the way back, you kind of start with big tobacco. Then there's sort of, you know, parallel with that is really sort of big oil, right? Mm -hmm. They just, they just kind of ruin the environment in the name of energy and profit. And then you've got um, big sugar, big food, which now, thank you very much, one in three Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. That's going to cost, by the way, an inordinate amount of dollars for the taxpayer in the next 20 years. Um, and now you've got what, what I have started to call big social. And it's going to be just another one of those, unfortunately, mm-hmm. where I think uh, 
they're going to wreak havoc on our mental health, which ultimately cascades into physical health problems, which ultimately cascades into, you know, diminished quality of life and death. Um, and I don't think that is overstated. I think people hear me say that now and they think I'm being dramatic, sort of in the same way that when I said that I was worried about civil war, they thought that I was being dramatic. And then, you know, a set of people saw what happened on January 6th. And I think they're like, well, I guess I can see how civil war could happen. Um, You're really worried but, about civil war? Oh, yeah. Really? I am. Yeah. Like, I mean, on the, I, look, I, I think I think you extrapolate. I mean, these services, what I don't think is clear to people is that they're literally driving a wedge between people in the United States. And they're convincing either side that they are absolutely in the right. Mm. Absolutely in the right so much so that it's okay to be violent. It's okay to assert because, because you know, look at our history. When people, when groups of people think they're in the right, they, they are entitled to be violent. That's the history of humanity. But the problem here that's different than before is you've got what people view as authority, authoritative sources on both sides, telling both sides that they are right. You are right. The election, the election was totally rigged. <laughs> right. And you are doing your duty as an American citizen to march towards that capital, break in, and harm the lawmakers so that they can't basically certify this election. Mm -hmm. You're completely justified. That's what they're being, that's what, that's what this device is telling them and the services. So um, a bit of a rant, but just, just take that to its natural conclusion. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the fact that you drive home in the film is that, it's not even that the people who made this, there's not like one person responsible. It's that the algorithms are get you, the goal of the algorithms is to get you to stay on the phone longer and whatever, whatever means they can do to do that, they will. And they're finding that a lot of this political, the political uh, content does that better than anything. Better than anything. And, and, and they'll probably come up with something sadly that maybe is even more harmful that makes us even more angry. Mm-hmm. And more self-righteous mm -hmm. that gets us to spend more time. Yeah. Um, but where I was, where I was going, that was a long-winded way of getting to the the thing that has really helped with diabetes is there's this marker called A1C that basically tells me what my um, my blood glucose, uh, my ability to sort of um, sorry, my blood glucose score, it, it gives me sort of a number that basically tells me how well um, I'm producing insulin. When I produce, when I eat sugar, I produce insulin and how well is that insulin managing, you know, the sugar that I eat. Mm -hmm. And that score has become sort of the, the hallmark of knowing when you've got a problem, right? Knowing when you're pre-diabetic and knowing when you're diabetic. And then you can say, oh, change your diet. And then A1C comes down and then you're sort of in the clear. We need something like that for phone overuse. Yeah. Because right now we're flying blind. If we image your brain, we can tell you, but we're not imaging everybody's brain. And we're certainly not imaging everyone's brain in real time all the time. Yeah. So 
one of the things that we hope for at moment, because because you're measuring the amount of time you spend. And that's useful because that's a nice measure of opportunity cost, but it's not telling you the damage that you're doing. And that might be, um, I think that might really motivate people. If I told you, you know, for every 10 minutes, you extra 10 minutes you spend on the phone, you're going to lose five IQ points on the test that you take tomorrow. You might be more motivated to get off your phone. Mm-hmm. Or to your earlier point about creativity, right? Your, your creativity index is going to drop by half if you're on your phone another hour. Yeah. And there's no question that that exists. I just don't know the magnitude. It's interesting you put it like that. I mean, I thought the, the count of how long you're on the screen a day is enough. But like you said, it's just it's not telling you the damage being done. And so I think even this conversation, hopefully I'll, I'll start to think about that more when I go to check my phone just out of habit. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say the number cause I got to get it out there. Cause this is a public battle. I'm going to be on. I yeah. had a seven hour average last week and wow. that's, that scares the shit out of me. It's never been that high. And my girlfriend was like, man, you're kind of on your phone a lot this week. I'm like, nah, no big deal. And then I looked and so it's my, it's like my new weight loss challenge. You speak yeah. it, yeah. it'll happen. Um, yeah. I also but- think it's useful. We measure this and, and Apple measures this and Android, Google Android measures this. Looking at pickups is another thing to pay attention to. Hmm. How do you because mean? You could use your phone two hours a day and pick, but pick it up a hundred times. Meaning, in terms of your attention span, some people pick up their phone a lot and they use it a lot. And pickups kind of show you just the fragmentation of usage that you have throughout the day. And if you pick up your phone 100, 150, 200 times a day, you're really slicing up your day um, in a way that uninterrupted time to do anything useful is almost gone. Wow. Interesting. Whereas if you hypothetically just got up in the morning and used your phone for seven hours straight and then got off, I would, I would uh, suggest to you that's healthier than using it, you know, in little sessions spread out over the day. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's another, another important thing to consider. And I know folks who are listening are, are probably wondering why I'm going down this rabbit hole, but I just like, you know, conversing whatever's on the mind. And this is coming into this interview. I knew I wanted to talk about this stuff, the business aspect, the, the phone um, addictions. Um, and we'll just round down with two quick questions. Yeah. This, one, this one I've been dying to ask you because you know, Silicon Valley and the folks who've lived out there, like used to live there and I have, you know, there's some trends that you don't want to be a part of. Like I didn't wear a vest for three years because everyone was wearing Patagonia vests. Now I got a vest, right? <laughs> um, there's just, there's hundreds of them like that, uh, that the, uh, at the California, Northern California bro texting might have, but one certainly is the ice bath. And I know you've tried to keep your ice bath routine under wraps so that you're not lumped into the uh, Kevin Rose's, the Tim Ferriss's of the world's, but are you still doing the ice bath and tell us your routine? Yeah, I do it. Um, I probably do it five days a week. I don't do it seven days a week. Um, uh, and I started doing this at Pinterest. I started doing it probably six or seven years ago. Um, I like to say, you know, before it became so, so in vogue. <laughs> um, I also like to like to say that I do it colder than all those guys, which I'm not certain of, but I would guess because mine is 35 degrees. 
And I would suspect they're probably between 45 and 55. Okay. Um, and I usually try to do somewhere between three and five minutes, depending on how uh, resilient and, and strong I'm feeling that day. I find as a, as sort of a wake up tool and a head clearing tool, um, it's just really effective. And it just ener it energizes me for several hours afterwards. Um, and, you know, people can, if they're interested, can certainly read online all the, all the health benefits. It, yeah. it immune, enhances your immune system. Um, it's good for blood pressure. It's good for circulation. It's good for your skin. Um, not that I'm, you know, too worried about my skin these <laughs> days, but maybe someday I'll be worried about that. Um, I, yeah, I just really, I just really like it. Yeah. It's, it's uh, kind of a habit. It's cool that you do it because it's, you know, you're, you're putting yourself through a little pain and suffering early in the day. I think know. that that point's a great one, right? Which is like, you know, I, I think they call it eat the frog in right. you know, sort of a self-help book. It's like, do the hard thing first. And it's a really hard thing physically and mentally. And you kind of do it, you get it out of the way. And so you've got kind of this first, first box that I suppose you've, you've checked. Love it. Last question. Uh, sometimes we ask this, sometimes we don't, but with you, it's particularly fitting. If someone came up to you, one of your friends in the Valley and, and someone says, you know, I heard you used to wrestle at Stanford. It's kind of a funny sport. There's a lot of weight <laughs> cutting, a lot of dieting, you know, it's kind of weird. Why would you, would you recommend that my kid wrestled? I, and I obviously you would, but why would you recommend a parent that their kid wrestle? I mean, so for so many reasons, um, you know, as a parent of young girls, um, I would say that one of the things you start to think about are just the, all the sports that are out there and their relative safety, right? You think about uh, football, not, not that safe. Um, and I've actually talked to, um, you know, various people who study the brain and, and, you know, even soccer because of all the heading and they may be changing the rules is not very good for your brain, especially in sort of the formative years when you're a teen. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a relatively safe sport, right? I mean, I'm beat up now. My neck kind of hurts a little bit. My, my knees kind of hurt a little bit, but there's nothing sort of systemic that I have to deal with in my brain. not as far as I know. Um, and so sort of baseline, like, is this a good, safe sport? Definitely. And then, and then I just think the, um, the discipline, I, I think psychologically learning to, um, learning sort of the mono a mono experience and vulnerability that comes with um, being physically dominated by another person Mm -hmm. In some cases, being physically dominant of another person, that's sort of just like a primal experience in both directions that I just think is useful and parallels a lot of other things in life. Um, and and learning, learning to be gracious when you are sort of physically dominated and mm -hmm. then and learning to be gracious when you when you're the um, when you win. Um, there's so much discipline involved. Um, you know, to compete at, at the higher levels, right? You've just got to be, um, and there's a level of fitness that, you know, few other sports 
a rival, right? Just in terms of cardio, anaerobic, and and strength. Um, and then intellectually, and and this is not obvious to people who don't do it, but it is one of the most cerebral sports out there. Absolutely. The technique and technical aptitude required to do wrestling and 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 continue to be successful is remarkable. It's so remarkable, in fact, that um, unlike a lot of sports, I think the peak, the Olympic peak age for wrestling is like mid to late 30s. Mm -hmm. Notwithstanding the physical, um, you know, decay that you probably have at that age relative to a 22 year old. That's how important technique is, by the way and how sophisticated the technique is because you need to study it for 20, 30 years to be the best in the world. So there, it's really sort of a chess match between two bodies. Um, and so that the calculus of how two bodies can interact and the, and the puts and the takes and the pan positioning and the head positioning, um, I think it made me I think it made me smarter. I think it made me a better problem solver. I think it made me more creative. I think it made me a better learner. Hmm. Um, I love that part about the learning. I mean, because then you think about what if you only had to wrestle one opponent for 20 years? Even that would be a task that's, that's you know, pointless. Yeah. But then you throw in someone like an Anthony Robles who has one leg. Then you throw in a Jordan Burroughs who has his own physical you know, capabilities or someone, every body type is different. So that only yeah. adds to the multiplier of combinations and, and to the yeah. difficulty of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like your point about the body type. I think the other thing that it does is it teaches you and this and really any sport teaches you, this is like, what are my strengths mm-hmm. given sort of my God given talents? Right. So if I'm a really tall guy for my weight class, how can I exploit the leverage that comes with my height in my technique? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's a whole similar exercise that someone who's, who's shorter for their weight can, can, can go through. Right. Um, so I just, I mean, that, that part, I think in terms of the benefits of a sport are just tremendous. And as we talked about earlier, it's probably harder than anything else you'll do in your life. Um, so, and that has tremendous value, right? Because then you, you, no matter what you do, you know, you can handle it because you wrestled. Right. I love it. Tim Kendall, you are the man, sir. I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Any last words for our listeners? No, keep, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of folks on here are wrestlers. So keep, keep it up, keep training hard. And, uh, you know, you're in the, you're in the right sport and, uh, and, and, and keep at it. Awesome. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it, Tim. Yep. Thank you. That's the end of this episode. Thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Combat. Please go to SpartanCombat.com to register for their national tournament taking place May 21st through the 23rd in Jacksonville, Florida. To see video clips of this interview, go to Wrestling Changed My Life on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. We'll see you next time.